Pray with me if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day when death is no more. Goodness, we haven't seen anything yet. There's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no disease, there's no sickness, there's no anxiety, there's no stress, there's no worries. We feel love like we've never felt it before. For we are in your presence. And we are finally put back together again the way you always intended for us to be with a renewed mind and a renewed body. Oh Lord, we look forward to that day. Whether that be you cracking open the sky and coming to take us to be with you at a moment's notice or whether that be the moment that we breathe our last breath on this earth and breathe our first breath in heaven, we look forward to our faith becoming sight. Lord, we've gathered here today to worship you, uh, to learn from your word, to be inspired and to be encouraged to be the people that you've called us to be. So Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Thanks so much for being with us today. I also want to welcome everybody on TV and on the stream as well. We have something very special coming up in the next couple of weeks. It's an annual thing we've been doing since the pandemic years ago. It's the Spooktacular. And this year, it's not a drive-through experience. It's a walk-around experience. And here's what's great. When you pull in, you'll just get your parking spot and just go on and just have a wonderful time time. I don't want you to miss out on this, so take a look at this. The Sagebrush Spectacular is back and better than ever with our new Sagebrush Spectacular walkthrough. That's right, no traffic, no waiting in long lines, just park and walk through. Throughout this two-hour event, you'll take pictures with Mickey, Minnie, and the princesses, see new faces like the enchanted characters from Encanto, and much more. There will even be a glow stick dance party. You don't want to miss out on this event happening Friday, October 28th to Sunday, October 30th from 7 to 9 p.m. Purchase a ticket for your entire car for just $20 on the Sagebrush app or online at sagebrush.church events. All proceeds from the ticket sales will be going to the Carrie Tingley Children's Hospital. A limited number of tickets are available each night so that there is plenty of room at the event for everyone to enjoy. Remember, only one ticket per car is needed, so mark your calendars and get ready for a spectacular night of fun. We can't wait to see you there. This event is an absolute blast, and tickets are selling quickly. You can get them on the Sagebrush app. You can also go to our website. It's only $20. You pack your car, as many seat belts as you've got. Don't go back to that seat belt limit, all right? Get as many as you can in the vehicle, and it's just $20 for the whole vehicle. We'll check tickets as you enter in, and then you can just hang out all night long and enjoy all the characters. We're basically bringing all your favorite characters right to you. And I tell you what, I'm flying my grandson in for this. He's only 13 months old. He's not going to remember it, but I will. You understand what I'm saying? So make sure if you got grandkids, you got kids, uh, if you just want to make a donation to Cary Tingley Hospital, we'll make certain that that happens every single dime goes to the hospital. So get your tickets today. Don't delay. We're living in the land of manana. All right, let's get into the message today. Uh, Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, and when it did, 57 people died. All 57 people refused to leave the mountain, and the one gentleman who got most national attention more than anybody else was a guy named Harry Randall Truman. 
Now, he's not to be uh, mistaken for Harry S. Truman, the former president of the United States. No, Harry Randall Truman was 83 years old, and he was determined that he was never going to leave the mountain because he believed that the mountain wouldn't hurt him. During the interview, this is what he said. He said, I'm going to stay right here because I'll tell you why. My home and my expletive life is here. My wife and I, we both vowed years and years ago that we would never leave Spirit Lake. We loved it. It's part of me, and I'm part of that expletive mountain. He was a colorful individual, old Harry. Well, Harry was wrong. After the eruption, his house was completely blown off the face of the earth. 1,300 feet of that mountain exploded, and there was no remains of Harry's house, and Harry's body was never found. Now, here's what's interesting. He ignored all the warnings. He ignored all of the signs. For two months, they knocked on his door, and they begged him to evacuate, but he wouldn't listen to what they had to say. He had to ignore 2,800 earthquakes that happened on the side of that mountain before it finally erupted. He ignored it all, and it cost him his life. It could have been different. Friends, listen to me. Are you ignoring the signs of the times because there's a lot of people that kind of roll their eyes when we talk about the return of Jesus. Remember the first week of this series we looked at 2 Peter 3 3. In the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and follow their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming that he has promised? People get to the point where they dismiss the return of Jesus. But Jesus said, Listen, there are signs that you need to be aware of. And when you see these things happen, then the coming of the Son of God is drawing very closely. Now, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun today. I'm going to show you a road sign, and I'm going to have you just shout out for me. You can play along at home as well. I'm going to have you shout out for me what the road sign represents. These should be pretty easy because most of them have the words on the actual sign. Okay? So I didn't want to make this too difficult. I want everybody walking out of here feeling like they're extremely smart. All right, I'm going to show you the first sign you shout out what it is. Here's the one. What is that? No All right, that's right. That's no U-turn. All right, how about this one? See how easy that is? I couldn't have made that easier for you. Some of you still don't know what that means. I've seen you drive. You know what I'm saying? Well, let's go with the next one. All right, good. You're doing excellent. That's one way. How about the next one? That took you a second. I tell you what, I don't know. Merge. All right, how about this one? Yeah, that's super. <laughs> you missed that one. Okay, we're just moving on, all right? Um, how about this last one? I see that there's some debate about this one right now. Um, someone said speed limit. Some said 55 miles an hour. Let's be honest, that means nothing to you. Because I've seen you drive. You go buzzing by me, and how do I know it's you? You know how I know. The sagebrush sticker. Well, Jesus said, listen, nobody knows the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return, but there are signs that will point to his return. There was a priest and a rabbi, and they made a sign, and they went out to the road, and they were pounding down the sign. It said, the end is near. Turn back. There was one particular motorist who drove by, and he got really upset with the sign. He slammed on his brakes, put the car in reverse, backed up, looked at the priest and the rabbi, and said, this is why nobody can stand you. 
Are you out here telling your little signs out there for us to turn back because the end is near? You're ridiculous. And he sped off, peeling off his tires as he went on his way. It wasn't about 10, 15 seconds later, there was a terrible car wreck. car got in a terrible wreck. That's when the priest turned to the rabbi and said, maybe we should change the sign to say the bridge is out. <laughs> Some of you will get that on the ride home, right? Okay. What are the signs that point to the return of Christ? We talked about these during this series. One was the return of Israel, the reestablishment of Israel. This one got our attention, didn't it? Israel completely was obliterated from the face of the earth in AD 70. And then all of a sudden in 1948, Israel becomes a nation again in one day's time. And we looked at the prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament concerning the coming of the nation of Israel. Friends, if the nation of Israel doesn't exist, Jesus doesn't return. You are one of the few generations that have seen the nation of Israel reemerge once again. And then we talked about the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has to be occupied by the Israelite people. And for almost 1,900 years, guess what? The, the Gentiles overruled all of Jerusalem until 1967. And that was when the Six-Day War occurred and Israel defeated all of its enemies in six days and they recaptured the city of Jerusalem. Again, you are one of the few generations to see this come. And then the Bible also prophesies that when this has happened, that people will come back to their homeland. They'll reestablish their territory. They'll reestablish their cities. And so far, over six million Jews have returned back to their home. And Jesus said this. He said, when you see these things happen, look to the skies. Because Jesus will be coming back soon. But those aren't the only signs, are they? Look at this in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, you know as well as I do that the things that Jesus mentions here in this passage of Scripture... They've been happening from one generation to another, to another, to another. We've always had wars and rumors of wars. We've always had natural disasters. We've always had famines and pestilence. But here's what's interesting. When I started researching this, is that the frequency is increasing. We're seeing more and more today than we have ever seen before. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, the coming of the Son of Man will be like a woman giving birth to her child. And what happens when a woman gives birth to her child? The contractions get closer and closer and closer and more and more painful along the way, don't they? I came across this this past week. Did you know in the last 100 years, 180 million people have been killed in wars? 180 million people in the last 100 years. That's the largest number of people dying in a war for in a 100-year period since, the, since we've started writing these things down through history. How about this one? Right now, there are 30 to 40 wars happening on planet Earth. 30 to 40 wars happening on planet Earth. There's very few years where there's been peace on planet Earth. And this doesn't include all the tribal wars that are happening in Africa. doesn't include all the drug wars, all the wars that are happening in neighborhoods all around the world. Look at what, uh, what about natural disasters. Look at this. According to naturalnews.com, David Gutierrez writes that there are approximately 500 natural disasters a year compared with 120 in the 1980s. 
If you got your math math out and your calculator out, that's up 400% over the last two decades. Jesus said it would be this way, right? He said it would become closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, and then Jesus would return. He continues in Matthew 24. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted, put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. We don't even know what love is anymore. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. According to the International Christian Concern website, there are 35 countries on the face of the earth where it's illegal to be a Christian. And if you're a Christian in one of these countries, if you're found with the Bible, if you're found praying to Jesus, guess what? They'll throw you in jail. They'll execute you. They'll torture you. They'll take your family from you. They'll, they'll hurt your family as well. They'll take away your livelihood, all because you proclaim the risen Savior. According to the National Association of Evangelicals, North Korea now has 100,000 Christians in concentration camps. Google it. Look at the satellite images. These people, these fellow brothers and sisters of Christ are being tortured on a daily basis. They're starving to death. They're being treated in manners in which no one should ever be treated. Executions are common in these concentration camps that they have in North Korea. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of God. So what have we been studying? We've been studying through 2 Thessalonians. What's happening in 2 Thessalonians? The people are freaking out. Why are they freaking out? Well, there's been some letter that's been going around. There's some rumor that's been swirling that Paul has said that Jesus has returned and these people think that they have been left behind. And so Paul sits down and he begins to write a letter to them saying, no, 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 here's what you're going to be looking for. Here's how it's going to unfold. Here are the signs. Here are the things you need to be aware of. So you need to calm yourself down. You need to relax. But in the next chapter we're going to look at, Paul finds something happening in this early church that was very, very interesting. Because they believed that Jesus was going to return quickly, like it was going to happen in their lifetime, and they had no idea that it would go as long as it's gone, they stopped going to their jobs. They stopped working. They, they said things like, you know, well, if Jesus is coming back, then why should I go have a job right now, right? If Jesus is coming back, I don't need to worry about my home here on this earth because I have a home waiting for me in heaven. And so there was a whole bunch of people in this little church at Thessalonica that now were mooching off of the church because they said, what's the sense of continuing to do the things that God wants us to do? We're just going to kick back, be on easy street, keep our eyes on the skies so when he returns, we'll be the first ones up there. They became lazy. Look at what Paul writes to them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. And then to bottom line this section, he says this. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Can you imagine how different our world would be if we stopped helping 
able-bodied people who have the ability to go and work and make a life for themselves. Listen, you can understand something. I'm all for helping people who need help. I don't have any problem with that. But when you're an able-bodied person and you're able to hold down a job and provide for yourself and maybe provide for your family, I think you should get a job. I think you should get a job. That's what I think. And I think it's ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. Don't you agree with me? I just think it's absolutely ridiculous that, that there are people who have figured out a system where you can make money by sitting at home doing absolutely nothing and milking off the taxpayer's money. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And Paul would say, listen, if you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat. You don't eat. Here's the deal. There's things that you're supposed to be about. There's things that you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be leveraging your life for the things of God, for the King of Kings. You're supposed to be faithful every moment of every day until he returns. So I'm reading this passage of Scripture. I'm like, all right, Paul, drop the hammer. Boom, went the mic, right? So what should we be doing until Jesus returns? Well, you ready for this? He doesn't tell us. So I'm in my office, and I said to myself, I said to myself, I said, yeah. Now what are you going to do with this message? Because it's dead right here, I tell you that right now. I thought, well, i got to come up with some things. i got to say some things. And then it occurred to me, I don't need to say anything. Because Jesus already did. What did Jesus say we should be about until his return? Two things. The Great Commission... And the great commandment. The great commandment says this in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So until Jesus returns, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be loving God with everything we've got. So let me explain what he means. He gives you four different categories, right? He says, love him with all of your heart. That has to do with your emotions, with all of your feelings. You love him with everything that you've got. And then it says that you love him with all of your soul. That, that involves in how you decide. Which direction am I going to go? You want to be in the very center of God's will. So you love him through every decision that you make. Does this edify him? Does this glorify him? And then you love him with all of your strength. That involves what you do. That whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You leverage everything you've got for the things of God and for the King of Kings, advancing his kingdom until he comes back. And then you love him with all of your mind. That's how you think. That's your intellect. Now, for the past 29 years, I have tried to love my wife in this way. I have tried to love her with all of my heart. For the first few years of our marriage, I kind of was a stoic husband. I never really told her what was on my mind. I never really told her about my emotions and my feelings. And she would come to me and she'd say, what are you thinking about? I'd say, nothing. I'm not thinking about anything. She said, no, no, not really. What are you thinking about? I want to know you deeply. I want to know you intimately. What's on your mind? Really, nothing's on my mind except this football game right now. That's all that's on my mind, to be honest with you. I was afraid. I was afraid to be vulnerable with her. I was afraid to share my thoughts. I was afraid to share my emotions with her, my anxieties, my stress with her. 
I remember one day I, I'd been going through a really hard time, and she could tell. And she had been bugging me, you know, uh, asking me again and again, what are you thinking about? What's going on? What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter? I just kept saying, nothing. Everything's great. Everything's great. Because that's what I was raised to be. I was raised, you know, you don't let anybody be burdened by what you're going through. You, you just handle the, the load yourself. You and the Lord together will somehow get through all that, right? So she's just bugging me, bugging me, bugging me, bugging me. And so I said, okay, you really want to know? You want to know what I'm thinking? You want to know what I'm feeling? So I just, I just let her have it. I told her everything that I was thinking, everything that I was going through, and then I was ready for her to say, well, good luck with that. That's what I was ready for, right? My weird wife, she said, tell me more. <laughs> Can I talk to the husbands here for just a second? You ready for this? This will blow you away. The more vulnerable you are with her, the more you share your heart, your emotions, the things that you're facing, the stresses, the anxiety, the worries, the things that keep you up at night, the more you share that with her, the more she'll fall in love with you. I mean, women are the weirdest people that God ever created. Do you understand what I'm saying? But that's the truth. I mean, it's like they want to connect with us on such a level of intimacy, and they can't connect on that level of intimacy if we're keeping them away from us. So I've tried my best to love my wife with all of my heart, and then I've tried to love her with all of my soul. Christy affects every decision that I make. Every decision. Every single decision. And I'm always asking myself, if I decide to go this way, or if I decide to do this, how will this affect her? How will this affect my family? Will this benefit them? Will this lift them up? Will this draw us closer together? Or is this a selfish thing that I want to do? Is this something that's frivolous, something that's not worthy of my time, something that's actually going to do damage to my bride, damage to my kids? So I try to love her with every decision that I make, and then I try to love her with every bit of strength that I have. I wake up every day. I, I, I do this in my premarital counseling. I say, this is what you need to train yourself to do. Every day you wake up and you ask yourself this question, what's one thing I can do to show my bride how much I love her? What's one tangible thing I can do to show her that I love her? Can you imagine if both people in a married relationship woke up every day deciding that there was one thing they were going to do to serve the other person? My goodness, that would be a picture of a beautiful relationship, wouldn't it? So I love her with all of my strength. And then I also love her with all of my mind as well. I come home and, and, I, and I talk to my wife, and all day long, we, we talk, and I think about her all day long. And, and my wife has affected a lot of the things that I, that I never thought that she would affect. For example, I'm, I'm a germaphobe because of my wife. She's affected me on that. She, she, one day, she shared with me, this was a, such a gross thing to share with your husband, but she said, do you know not many people wash their hands when they're in the bathroom? I did not recognize that before. And then she said, next time you go in the bathroom, here, I'll, I'll have you do the same thing. Next time you go into a public bathroom, just kind of sit around by the sink. Look at the number of people who use the restroom and then just walk out. It's nasty. I'll tell you that right now. It's a whole bunch. They are legion, my friend. They are many. And so she said, yeah, you know, I, you, shaking hands. She made me germaphobe. Shake, hate. Eh, shaking hands. Because I don't know where that hand has been. You know what I'm saying? You ever shake somebody's hand that's sticky? Like, what is that about? <laughs> so I'm always washing my hands like I'm a doctor. I got my wife to thank for that. 
She's changed my mind about how the toilet lid should be down every time when I'm done. That's what she's changed my mind about. And I got to be honest with you, this was a hard one for me because I kind of enjoyed the middle of the night hearing her splash when she went to the restroom, you know? <laughs> that was hilarious to me. It wasn't funny to her, though. That's the way that was right there. She's changed my mind about what it is to love somebody, what it is to forgive somebody. There was a day in my life when I washed my hands of people. You do me wrong, fine, you'll never get a second chance. And I wouldn't open up my heart to anybody. I wouldn't give anybody a second chance. She taught me how to love. She taught me how to forgive. She's the one who taught me that forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. Because the other person that you're so angry with has already moved on with their life. She's affected my mind. I tell you what, she's affected my mind. She's affected my mind about what matters in life. Christy and I first got married, I was a workaholic. It was nothing for me to work 60, 70 hours a week. And then Mackenzie was born, and I missed the first two years of her life because I just continued to be a workaholic. Friends, I am a recovering workaholic. I still can fall back into these things. She's the one who taught me that there are some things more important than your job. She's the one that has shared with me on more than one occasion. They can replace you at your job anytime they want to. But I can't replace you as my husband, and our kids can't replace you as their dad. So you need to make certain that you're here for the things where you're irreplaceable and not give your life to the things where it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Friends, listen to me. We can, we can love God this way, can't we? We can love God with all of our heart. We can open up to God. How long has it been since you cast all your cares upon him because he cares so much for you? How long has it been you say, oh, God, I'm going through a rough time. I'm going through some suffering. God, I'm going through some pain. This situation doesn't make any sense to me at all. And you just threw up on God, and you just gave him everything. I'm telling you right now, the more you're honest with God, the more you're vulnerable with God, the more you'll feel the presence of God. And the more you keep God in an arm's distance away... The more time you think you can handle life in your own terms, in your own power, in your own direction, I'm telling you, there will be a distance between you and God because you're no longer walking with him. You're walking so far ahead of him. You're on your own, dude. But when you'll be vulnerable with him and you'll share your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, it changes everything. Can you imagine if every decision you made this next week before you made the decision, you just asked the Lord, is this what you want me to do? Is this the direction that you want me to go? Is this what you want me to eat? Is this what you want me to say? Is this how you want me to treat this person? It would change everything. And if you used all your strength for the Lord, if you every day said, Lord, what's one thing I can do to serve you? What's one thing today, Lord, that you can use me in a way that I've never been used before to help somebody? I just want to be your hands. I just want to be your feet. And what's one way you can love God with your mind? Rather than filling your mind with all the other trash and garbage that's out there, what if we filled our mind on him and we fixed our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith and we ran the race in such a way as to win the prize? We should love him with everything that we've got. And then the second command is similar, isn't it? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to be the most loving, grace-giving, forgiving people that the world has ever seen. We're not supposed to be the ones full of anger. We're not supposed to be the ones full of bitterness or selfishness. 
We're not supposed to be the ones holding stuff over somebody else's head. My gosh. We're not supposed to be the ones holding a grudge for decades at a time. We're supposed to love the way he's loved us. We're supposed to forgive the way that he's forgiven us. We're supposed to pray for others the way that he's interceding for us right now. We love everybody, whether we agree with them or not. We love them, regardless of their political persuasion, regardless of their sexual habits and addictions. We love people. Because that's what Jesus said they would know us by. You'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. That was the saddest applause. I tell you what, if we're going to applaud, let's give it everything we got, right? (laughs) There was a black gentleman. He was in the South, and he wanted to go to this church, and it was a predominantly, well, it was an all-white church. He didn't know that, and he didn't know he wouldn't be welcome. So he walked through the doors and stares at everybody else. The pastor walked over, and the black gentleman said, I got a feeling that these folks here don't want me here. And the pastor said, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go home, you need to pray about it. So the black gentleman went home and he prayed about it. A few weeks went by. Black gentleman was walking down the street. White pastor was walking the other direction. They ran into each other. Pastor said, did you pray about it, son? The black gentleman said, I sure did. He said, and what did God tell you? The black gentleman said, God told me not to worry about it. He said, I hadn't been welcomed in that church either for the past 20 years. (laughs) Friends, we're supposed to love and care and serve other people. And it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what they believe. They will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. So what are we supposed to do till Jesus returns? Love. Man, love God with everything you got. When you get to the end of your life, you want to know you had no regrets. It's because you loved him with every fiber of your being. And you didn't love your neighbor. Love that person across the street. Love that coworker. Love that classmate. And then we're supposed to give ourselves to the Great Commission. Jesus said this, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching to obey everything I've commanded you. What's our job, friends? It's the neighbor across the street. It's the person that we work with. It's the kid who wants to cheat off your test score. It's every single person that you lock eyes with. That is a person who matters greatly to God. That is someone whom Jesus gave his life for. Jesus rose again from the dead for. And our job is to reach out to them with the love of Jesus Christ and share the difference that Jesus has made in our life. I read a story this past week about a gentleman by the name of Bill. Bill was working in Chicago on downtown on this particular day, and he ran into a homeless man by the name of Robert. Robert asked him if he could get some money from Bill to go buy himself a lunch. Bill said, no, I won't give you any money. But I tell you what I'll do. Let's go to the restaurant together. We'll have lunch together. Well, Robert thought that was a pretty good idea, and so they sat down at a nice restaurant, and they began to have a meal together. And Bill and Robert began to have a conversation. 
And Robert began to explain that he was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to drugs. He didn't want to be that way, but it's been so long. And he just didn't have the power inside of him to make any kind of change in his life. Well, they get to the end of the meal and the conversation. And Bill looks over at Robert and says, you know, the 4th of July is coming up right around the corner. How about I give you some money right now for a train ticket? I live out in the suburbs. You get on the train. I'll be waiting for you at the, at the train stop. I'll pick you up, and I'll take you to my house. We'll enjoy the 4th of July together with my family. Well, Robert thought that was a wonderful idea. He said he would be there. So the 4th of July came rolling around. And at the appointed hour when the train came in, when Robert was supposed to get off, guess what? Robert wasn't on the train. Now, let me tell you what most people would have done at this point in time. They'd have washed their hands of it and said, well, I tried. Guess Robert wasn't interested. But that's not Bill's style. Bill got in his car, drove to downtown Chicago. He went from bar to bar to bar looking for Robert. Couldn't find him. He still wouldn't stop. He thought, where else would Robert go? He began to drive around city parks, one park after the other after the other. And he found Robert passed out on a park bench, used the money for the ticket for drugs and alcohol. Bill picked him up. Carried him back to his car, drove him all the way out to the suburbs, put him in his home, put him in his bed, let him get sobered up. And the next few days, they enjoyed some time together there at Bill's house. Well, one afternoon, they were sitting there and they were talking. And Robert once again shared how he didn't want to live this way. He just didn't have the power to break free. Bill said, listen, you're made in the image of God. And God has a plan and a purpose for your life that's far greater than anything you've ever dreamed or imagined. And he told him how Jesus died for him. How Jesus rose again from the dead. How all of his sins could be washed as white as snow. How he could breathe his last breath on this earth and breathe his first breath in heaven if he would just trust Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of his life. And you know what Robert said? He said, I want that. I want that relationship. And right there at that dinner table, he prayed and he asked Jesus in his life. Well, a few days went by, and Bill got word that Robert had passed away. But that's okay, because Robert's now in heaven. All because there was a divine appointment that Bill took. You see, when I think about that story, when I read that story, I thought to myself, Bill did exactly what Jesus would have done. You see, Jesus is the one who leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep. Jesus is the one who scours the whole house looking for the lost coin. Jesus is the one longing for the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter to finally come to their senses and to come back home again. Oh, the relentlessness of Jesus, the pursuit of Jesus. Do we have that? I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I stop praying for people. Sometimes I give up on people. Friends, may it be said of you and may it be said of me that there's not a moment of any day of our life where we're not trying to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. Where we're not trying to advance the kingdom of God and share with people what we have found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you've given us our marching orders. We know what we're supposed to be about. We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love you and love others. Lord, are we doing that? Are we doing that fully? 
Or do we have a list of people that we don't seem to care for anymore? Do we represent you and your love well? And Lord, we're supposed to talk about you. And yet for many of us in this room and many watching from home, it's been a long time since we've built an intentional friendship with someone who's far from you. Been a long time since we've shared the difference you've made in our life with somebody else. My goodness, Lord, it's been a long time for some of us just to invite somebody to church. And time is ticking. We're closer to your return than we've ever been before. And this was the thing that you said you wanted us to be about. So Lord, help us. Help us to be bridge builders. Help us, Lord, to attach people to you. May we so live for you and love you and shine for you that people would see the difference that you've made in our life. And Lord, as the Holy Spirit gives us opportunity, may we be bold and courageous to share that difference as well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.